Welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the headlines today, New York State passes an eviction moratorium that will protect people from losing their homes if they face COVID-related financial hardship. The Save Our Stages Act, aimed at offering aid to independent music venues throughout the country, is passed as part of the COVID-19 relief package. A national union of musicians and allied workers organizes to support issues affecting venues and performers, and homeless unions across the country, along with the Poor People's Campaign, continue their winter offensive against homelessness. In New York, I'm Olivia Riggio with The Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. I'm filling in this week for John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. A new amendment to the stimulus bill to increase the check amount from $600 to $2,000 passed in the House with the question of whether Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell will even bring the vote to the Senate floor. He blocked a motion by Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer to approve the bill. He said the Senate would, quote, begin a process to consider bigger payments, but did not elaborate further on how exactly the Senate would move to consider those demands. In retaliation, Senator Bernie Sanders is objecting to the vote to override Trump's veto of the $740 billion National Defense Authorization Act, or NDAA. He began his filibuster this afternoon to delay the vote, possibly past New Year's Day. Sanders can't stop the veto override from happening, but it will cause a major headache for Republicans and incentivize prioritizing the relief bill vote. If McConnell announces plans to bring the stimulus check increase up for a formal vote, it could take several days for that vote to occur. Regardless of the amount on the check, the government will cut. The stimulus package also includes $15 billion dedicated to live venues, independent movie theaters, and cultural institutions through the Save Our Stages Act. We'll talk more about the passage of this act with Reverend Moose, Executive Director of the National Independent Venue Association, later on in the broadcast. In other music industry organizing news, a group of musicians created the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers, or UMA, this past spring in response to the struggles independent musicians were having not being able to play live shows. But the group is also addressing other systemic issues in the industry, from police brutality to the Spotify streaming service paying artists less than a penny per stream. Later on, we'll talk with Liz Pelly, a journalist within these times who covered the group in a recent article. President-elect Joe Biden has accused the Trump administration of withholding information from his transition team, endangering national security. He said they've obstructed access to information from the Office of Management and Budget and the Pentagon. Right now, we just aren't getting all the information that we need for the ongoing, outgoing, from the outgoing administration in key national security areas. It's nothing short, in my view, of irresponsibility. December has been the deadliest month for COVID in the U.S., and now one in every 1,000 Americans has died from it. California topped 2 million cases last week, and hospitals in Southern California are reporting few to no ICU beds available. New York State's positivity rate jumped to 8% over the weekend. The upcoming weeks are expected to be worse due to holiday travel. A journalist who documented the coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan, China, will be jailed for four years. A Shanghai court found Zhang Zhan guilty of, quote, picking quarrels and provoking trouble, an offense commonly used by the Chinese government to target dissidents and activists. This spring, Zhang documented what she saw in Wuhan via Twitter, YouTube, and WeChat. Twitter and YouTube are banned in China. The indigenous Honduran environmental activist Felix Vasquez was killed by armed masked men Saturday in front of his family. Vasquez was a member of the indigenous Lenca community and was planning to run for Congress in 2021. He had complained to authorities in 2017 about alleged political persecution for his work. The NGO, the Coalition Against Impunity, blames the government for his killing because it did not take action sooner. Quote, the state is directly responsible for his murder due to its omissions in the face of the serious risks of which it was duly aware, the group said. Honduras is one of the world's most dangerous countries for activists. 14 land and environmental defenders were killed last year, according to data by advocacy group Global Witness. The National Union of the Homeless, in partnership with the Poor People's Campaign, is holding its winter offensive, a series of information sessions and organized actions throughout the country to fight homelessness. Later on, we'll be talking to Pauline Pisano, a lead organizer with the New York State Poor People's Campaign. 
Earlier this month, a group of housing rights organizations and other activists marched in downtown Brooklyn to demand an end to evictions and to cancel rent. We are the tenants! We are the tenants! The mighty, mighty tenants! The mighty, mighty tenants! They had a victory today as the state of New York passed a new housing law that will protect most renters from eviction until May 1st if they are suffering from pandemic-related financial hardship. When we come back from this short break, we'll be speaking with Reverend Moose, Executive Director of the National Independent Venue Association, about the Save Our Stages Act. That was Deathless by eBay. I'm Olivia Riggio with the independent New York City's progressive newspaper and website. I'm filling in this week for John Tarleton, the Indies Editor-in-Chief. You can find the new print edition of The Independent in our red and white news boxes across the city, and you can follow our latest reporting online at independent.org. That's I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot org. This fall, I published an article with the Indy that covered the work of NEVA, the National Independent Venue Association. NEVA was formed as a coalition of independent venue owners. This past year, an alarming number of independently owned music and arts venues went out of business due to shutdowns coupled with insufficient government aid. At the time, NEVA was fighting for expanded relief for venue owners as part of the Save Our Stages Act. They had a victory this month as the very fraught upcoming relief bill includes Save Our Stages. Here to talk with us about NEVA and next steps of the Save Our Stages campaign is Reverend Moose, Executive Director of NEVA and Managing Partner and Co-Founder of the independent music marketing firm Marauder Group. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Olivia. I really appreciate it. So for those who don't know, what separates an independent venue from a corporate venue? Well, it's ownership, right? You know, it's who owns it, who's booking the talent, who's um, who, who's interacting with the community. And independent venues, at least as far as Neva's standards, are ones uh, in, in a broad sense that aren't owned by a multinational or a publicly traded company, which means that they are owned by uh, generally by locally um, run companies or mom and pop operations or by community members themselves that are able to. I guess, more efficiently and seamlessly tap into the local community in, in many different ways. They're the ones that are opening their doors for fundraisers. They're the ones that are hiring locally. They're the ones that are booking tomorrow's next rising star from the neighborhood. That, that, that comes from the independent venues. So walk us through the formation of NEVA this spring. Just how sure. bleak was the prognosis for indie venues and um, how did you logistically bring it to light? Well, I think, you know, it's important to kind of look back to mid-March when uh, there was a uh, very firm line in the sand and one day everything was somewhat normal and the next day everything was closed. Um, you know, bars, restaurants, venues, et cetera. I think what we realized very quickly was that the funding options that came from the government didn't take into consideration the specific parameters that running a live events venue um, has that come with it. And, and we're talking about no po no possible date for a reopening, knowing that we were the first to close and that we will be the last to reopen. Uh, you know, this is probably a post-vaccine industry. Uh, and, and it just made, made, sense that, made sense that, you know, the same government that was able to help other businesses would be able to, in some way, help those that have to remain shuttered until there is a full reopening, get through not just the, um, the expected uh, loss that, that many businesses are incorporating, but the fact that we have actual negative revenue, that just the very existence of trying to stay in business right now means that you're you're losing revenue through ticket refunds and excessive rent and mortgage and insurance that, you know, you have to pay for for an empty room in the middle of most cities, which is where a lot of these venues are. And even the rural, uh, rural neighborhoods, suburban venues, all of these types of places are all dealing with the same problems. And, and because they're so important to the local economy, you know, we had a, stud a study that came out uh, a year or two ago that showed that for every dollar spent at a local and independently owned venue, it generates $12 in economic activity. You can imagine what that means for the surrounding businesses, for the taxes, for, for 
parking garages, pizza parlors, restaurants, bars, like everybody benefits from having these venues as economic cultural centers in their in their neighborhoods. And what about um, going into the fact that they're cultural centers more? It's oftentimes easier for younger and undiscovered and diverse musicians to be booked at indie venues. Can you go into that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, you have to kind of think about this. I and mean, it all makes sense if you actually kind of peel back the layers a little bit. When you're talking about being booked at an independently owned room, you're talking about somebody that uh, probably lives in the neighborhood, that interacts with the locals, whose kids go to the same schools, who's, uh, you know, familiar with the local artist in a way that somebody from maybe one of the coastal cities that is booking for the entire country or even the entire world isn't necessarily as intergrained in. And I think that when you're talking in in that perspective, uh, it's generally somebody you could actually walk up to and shake a hand. I mean, I know it sounds a bit old school and, and somewhat mythical, but the reality of it is, is these are people that are in the community. So if you're uh, in one local band and you have a bit of a history and you start another band, you already know the right people to be able to talk to without having to go through a lot of the larger machine that the industry uh, you know, relies upon as far as the infrastructure with the managers and the booking agents and, you know, some of the record labels involved. So it, it, independent venues are, by their very core and essence, much more approachable for local community members. And, and we're talking about all sizes here, small venues, big venue, venues, amphitheaters. They're all going to be more favorable towards local community and local arts and culture than something that is owned by a conglomerate. Moving on to the Save Our Stages Act, what were some of the actions and organizing NEVA did to rally behind it? Well, you know, the first thing we did was was realize that we weren't in the first uh, the first CARES package. You know, that was, uh, I guess, a, a bit of a reckoning moment where as we all waited and everybody was waiting back in March, you know, and saying, OK, well, what, what's going to be done here? And what was done uh, were good programs. PPP in particular was a, was a solid program. It just unfortunately didn't serve the needs for this specific business model. Uh, you know, it didn't necessarily, it wasn't appropriate for uh, companies that had many part-time employees. The flexibility wasn't there to be able to use the funds where it's necessary. Payroll was by far not the biggest expense for many of these businesses, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, we have a massive, uh, you know, collection of these independent venues and promoters from across the country that otherwise had never uh, organized in such a way to be able to actually rally for support from from Congress. And so we basically said, look, we have to fight for ourselves. Nobody else is going to go out there and wave this flag for us. And uh, it happened quickly, very, very quickly. I mean, we're talking about days, not weeks, where the need was identified and then boom, everything was organized. We were able to secure some uh, some some funding from the beginning to be able to at least help cover the cost for the for the lobbyist in D.C. Uh, and um, and you know then from there it's just been a tidal wave of support since then. I think that that actually says something though to be able to look back and see not just the fact that this has been successfully turned from a request into a bill into a law like that that in itself is amazing. The fact that that happened in a little more than six months is is nothing short of just monumental. But this was done with just overwhelming support. We're talking about support from the fans, support from the artists, support from the communities. We're, we're talking about, you know, hundreds of senators and, and, and representatives that, you know, are bipartisan support to be able to push this forward. This was not something that was controversial. This was a very common sense piece of legislation and request that we had asked for from the beginning. And I think that's why when you look at the overall uh, the, the 15, the 900-something the, 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 the billion dollar, uh, you know, plan that was put into place, the fact that there's a $15 billion carve-out that is specifically for independent venues and promoters and, 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 and agents and, and all these other companies that are that don't have any other um, income and, and no reopening date for the foreseeable future, there's a reason that this was specifically included. It just makes sense. And you went into this a little bit before, but I think it's a really important point to drive home. Why didn't the previous stimulus bill and the Paycheck Protection Program offer the specific type of help that venues needed? 
Well, I don't think it was for any ill intention. I just think everything moved so quickly. And this was one of those times in history where you could see how fast the government moved and it happened quickly. And we all just kind of felt the second round was going to come just as quickly. And so as fast as we had mobilized and we were mobilized by like the first week of April, we had kind of figured that by May, the next pa- the next package would be passed and we'd be able to get ourselves included in that. Obviously, that wasn't the case, and the entire country is being affected by this. So uh, the fact that it took until the end of December for the second stimulus package to be able to come through, um, you know, look, that's just unfortunately the world in which we live. But it, it gave us uh, a, a lot more opportunities to be able to knock on representatives and senators' doors and say, listen, like you, you need to listen to this. You're going to lose these these businesses that are instrumental to um, to the, the communities that that, are, that you're supposed to be serving, and and we did lose many of them. We've lost several hundred venues across the country over the last year. It's unfortunate. It's really terrible. There's been some absolutely amazing venues that uh, will not come back. And because of the way that uh, you know live events happen, comedy clubs, jazz clubs, music clubs, etc. Because of the way that these things happen, you can't just open up a door a year from now and say, okay, we're back. That's just not how the world works. And more importantly, is what's really at risk here is not live music or live entertainment. What's really at risk here is who's going to be controlling this. Is it going to be locally owned? Is it, or is it going to be employing from the community? Is it going to be booked from uh, you know, an office across the country, across the world? Who's going to be uh, re- re- reaping the reward for, for booking all this, this talent? Because it's not going to be a lack of venues is going to be a lack of independently locally owned mom and pop venues. That's what really has been at risk all this time. Now that Save Our Stages has been enacted, what are the next steps that Neva is going to be taking? Well, we uh, have a collection of independent venues and promoters that had previously not necessarily worked as closely together. And uh, we've made a lot of friendships and we, we are all aligned in being able to uh, try to do more good. And, uh, you know, we're certainly championing the causes that are going to be helping our, helping our employees and our staff, the art, artists and the artists of the community, and just trying to be able to make sure that uh, since we have this opportunity and that NEVA exists now and it, it didn't exist before, that we can make sure that where our voices need to be heard, they are. And more importantly, where one of these independent venues or promoters would need help, uh, that we as NEVA can can activate to be able to help them uh, where they might not have otherwise had the same support. And that's really important for us because I think that, you know, because the real difference between independent and being a corporate venue is is uh, accessibility to resources. So when something happens, a fire, a hurricane, a flood, a pandemic, uh, then, you, you know, you're, you're on your own. That's was the case prior to March. And now that we're at least talking with each other and organized and We have a really great community, and and we're all working as closely as we possibly can. I hope that uh, the next time somebody is hit with an adverse condition that we're able to help them, and they're not on their own, because that, to me, would be the real success here. Now, the um, passage of the Save Our Stages Act is a victory, but you did mention hundreds of that are going to be closed down. How can we bring those into the conversation now that aid is on the way? Well... I think uh, you know that's that's a good that's a good question, and and I think it's important that we remember those venues that uh, weren't able to necessarily make it for the last nine months because there was no money and there was no foreseeable date as to when this would pass, and certainly having it take as long as it took, especially for something that was so common sense, we saw casualties as a result of that, and we're going to continue to see casualties even in the time frame it takes for people to uh, get this enacted and then obviously apply and hopefully get some some financial return from it. There's a reason that the application uh, for this grant is staggered. And the first round is going to be open to people that have suffered 90% or more loss of revenue. And the second round is going to be to people that have suffered 70% or more loss of revenue before it opens up to a wider berth. And, um, you know, I, and then at the same time, we have the NEVA emergency relief fund, which is then, um, you know, raising funds through uh, through through our own charitable efforts through SaveOurStages.com, and that has been to assist the venues that are in the most dire positions to be able to bridge that gap between what they need right now and what they're getting from the government when that should come. And to date, mm-hmm. we've been able to generate several million in, in donations just for that alone. 
So I, I hope that, you know, the venues that are no longer, um, you know, a part of the ecosystem, the people that have been a part of it are able to see the support system that's in place right now. And in one way or another, you know, find something or a way to be able to still be involved. That to me would, would be uh, something to celebrate in itself. Well, thank you for your insights tonight, Reverend Moose, Executive Director of NEVA. If you want to learn more, you can go to SaveOurStages.com. When we return, we'll be discussing another music industry-related issue with Liz Pelly, a journalist with In These Times, who recently published an article about a new union of musicians and allied workers. was Existential Crisis by Lazy Bones. In April, when businesses were forced to close during the coronavirus, many independent musicians and other industry workers who relied on live gigs for income didn't know when their next paycheck would be coming from. A group of them met virtually in April to discuss solidarity and ended up forming the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers, or UMA. Through, uh, though the group began by rallying behind the of unemployment benefits under the CARES Act, it also took on other issues from labor relations to police abolition. The group is based in Rhode Island, but has more than 1,000 musicians across the country who have signed on to its petitions. Its most recent cause is for justice at Spotify. The $40 billion streaming platform pays artists less than a cent per stream, even as musicians are still unable to rely on income stream from live performances. Here to talk to us about Yuma is Liz Pelly, a journalist with the Independent news magazine in these times whose december 7th article on the issue outlined the demands of this group hi liz thanks for joining us this evening hey thank you for having me so how did you first hear about yuma and what about it stuck out to you as being something that you wanted to share with readers sure yeah well i had been familiar with some of the organizing that various members of Yuma um, had been doing over the past few years and also familiar with a lot of the artists who are involved in Yuma just through my own involvement in um, music communities over the years. So, um, you know, the the roots of uh, Yuma's organizing this year are uh, largely in the organizing that they did around um, the expansion of the CARES Act um, from March through May, um, as you mentioned, the letter writing and the day of action, the phone calls they did. But even prior to that, a lot of the members of UMA had involved, been involved in various campaigns over the past few years. Like in 2017, some of the current members of UMA were involved in a campaign to hold South by Southwest, the music festival, accountable for a deportation clause that they had in their artist contract. And then last year, a lot of the, uh, some of the current members of UMA were involved in this organization called New Music for ICE, which was a, a group that was organizing artists to um, sort of agree to not work with Amazon until they cut their contract with ICE. So there are a lot of different um, musicians who are involved in UMA who have been involved in other examples of um, attempts at organizing musicians collectively over the past few years. Um, and as a journalist who mostly writes about, you know, a lot of the issues that artists face in the music industry today, um, these types of collective actions and collective organizing efforts are always really inspiring to me. And I think something that is really important to highlight, if we're going to highlight all of the issues and challenges um, that artists face in the music industry today, it's also really important to point to these um, examples of collective organizing as well. And what were some of the biggest fears that the musicians you spoke to for your art 
article had? Well, I think that this year, particularly, a lot of the artists that were involved in the initial um, organizing meetings of UMA were really concerned about, like, how are music workers and musicians going to be, um, you know, protected um, right now as, you know, all venues are closed? Because um, there, you know, there are a lot of different um, ways to be a musician and a lot of different um, sort of practices and um, situations that comprise like what it means to be a musician. Like, you know, some people who are musicians are full-time classical players, for example, and they're employed by orchestras and they are, you know, become union members when they accept jobs. Um, some people who are musicians like self-record songs at their houses and they self-release cassettes and they don't have career um, ambitions related to music, but playing music is like an important part of the social fabric of their lives. And then there's also musicians who maybe don't have full-time music-related jobs, but they um, are making a living off of their music, but they're making a living from lots of different revenue sources, from recording, from touring, from maybe uh, maybe teaching or working at a venue. Um, and for those artists, um, because of the, the state of um, how artists, make money from recordings, which is they make like very little money from recordings and streams. Um, touring is their main revenue source. So for the types of working freelance musicians that UMA um, represents when venues shut down in March, um, they found themselves in a situation where their main revenue source had been um, shut down. So I think that um, that was probably yeah like you know that was like one of the main reasons i think that this organizing which i think most members of MUA would agree that this is like a type of organizing that um you know needed to happen before the pandemic also but um now with touring not happening it became like even more urgent and what also seems unique about UMA is that it's taking up other issues that aren't just coronavirus-related aid. They're looking to make systemic change throughout the industry. And one of those issues was the Spotify issue, which I know you've covered. But um, can you touch on that and a few of the other things that they're working towards? Sure, yeah. So when I interviewed UMA, it was back in October. And at that point, they had been focused on this organizing around the, the CARES Act. Um, they also had created subcommittees and working groups around things like um, venue relations, police abolition, political education, and also one of the working groups that they have is a streaming working group. Um, so since the time of our interview, they've launched this campaign called the Justice of Spotify campaign, which has now become you know one of their... Um, so far, most successful and widely shared and discussed um, efforts. And basically, that campaign um, is a series of demands they're making with Spotify to, um, you know, pay artists fairly. They're also raising this other point where they're asking Spotify to adopt a user-centric payment model, um, which is different from the current model on Spotify, which is like a pro-rata model um, in which revenue is um, pooled and distributed to artists um, by how popular they are in the grand scheme of the artists on Spotify. And they're also asking Spotify to be transparent um, and to make their closed door contracts public um, to reveal and, and payola and to credit labor and recordings and also to end legal battles against artists. Um, so there's a lot of different demands that they're, they're making. And, um, you know, I think that why this is important is, uh, this is one of the, one of the first collective efforts to organize musicians around, a um, structured set of concerns regarding the streaming economy and the state of, um, you know, how streaming affects artists' lives. Um, and, a lot of the ways in which streaming affects artists' lives um, is financial, but it's also, you know, the way in which um, streaming tech um, sort of like 
atomizes and individualizes artists. And I think that one of the most important things that could be happening in this moment to sort of like push back against that is this type of, um, you know, collective organizing. Mm -hmm. And because of this political and political education element of UMA's work, it kind of stands out. Why is this kind of activism important in the music industry? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that, you know, in order to look at the, the state of the music industry and all the different sort of like labor concerns and um, media related concerns and um, other, there are, there are a lot of, a lot of the issues in the music industry are political concerns, basically. Um, and I think, like, for that reason, it's important for artists and also other music workers and people consider themselves members of music communities to understand the bigger picture of, like, political um, and economic context that music exists within. Um, I, I also think that this sort of political education is important because Ultimately, like a lot of the problems of the streaming era um, that musicians and music communities face um, are rooted in problems that existed before the streaming era that are sort of like issues that music and art have always faced that are now sort of like re-encoded in new ways. Um, and I think that one of the biggest problems is that there isn't a lot of like public support for music um, in terms of like public funding, like public programs that support music communities. So, um, you know, this is a little bit of a divergence from um, issues that UMA is taking up right now, but it is important thinking about music in this political and economic context for lots of reasons, one of which is um, it's important for us to think about like how um, our elected officials and political structures could be better supporting music and music communities. What do typical musicians' unions that already exist look like, and how does UMA stand out? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that one of the reasons why um, a union like UMA um, was so you know desperately needed by the types of musicians who have started organizing around it is because there are musicians' unions that have existed historically um, for you know, musicians that operate more in the world just like um, classical or theater um, and the types of musicians that have um, been organizing within UMA really are more like freelance musicians. So there are musicians who might not necessarily um, find a place within an organization like um, AFM or like any kind of um, union that is um, more catering to the needs of, you know, full-time uh, theater or classical musicians. Um, so when I interviewed Yuma um, earlier this year, you know, Yuma members compared what they're doing sort of more to something like the um, Freelance Solidarity Project, which is a union of um, freelance writers and media workers. Um, so, some, you know, Yuma is sort of more in the um, spirit of something like that than something like ASM, maybe. And um, as in the article, you know, um, one of the members of UMA who I interviewed talks about how, like, the type of organizing that they're doing is sort of more like in the spirit of um, ongoing efforts to organize um, adjuncts and freelancers and geek workers in, in general. Um, and the organizing that UMA has done, they've sort of like explicitly articulated it as in solidarity with like geek workers more generally. And like you mentioned before, many of the systemic issues that UMA is focusing on aren't new, but how has 2020, how has COVID-19 and everything that happened this year expedited these needs and really pushed them into creating the group? Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, a lot of what we were talking about earlier, the the pandemic has affected different musicians in different ways, and there are a lot of different um, ways to be a musician. But for the types of musicians that comprise UMA, it really has been like the closure of venues um, that has sort of 
um, you know, exacerbated the the problems that they face. The the fact that so so many musicians rely um, solely on touring income as their main revenue source, um, and yeah, like the you know the types of venues that a lot of Yuma musicians rely on are are venues that you know have always relied on community support and venues that are um, you know have faced issues before the pandemic and hopefully will still be open when um, shows can safely happen again. For anyone looking uh, to get involved with Yuma or to learn more through your article, where can they go? Yeah, so Yuma's website is theunionofmusicians.org and um, in these times is in these times.com and um, you should be able to find it um, through there. And there's also, you know, um, other music organizing projects that are um, going on these days as well, like the um, Music Workers Alliance and other groups. So, um, yeah, definitely like any musicians who are um, interested in organizing efforts. Um, there's there's definitely a, a wave of organizing musicians that is happening this year um, to tap into. Well, thanks so much, Liz. After this break, we'll be talking to Pauline Pisano, a head organizer with the New York State Poor People's Campaign. That was Falling by Sabine Reen. I'm Olivia Riggio with the independent New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM. Before we continue with our third segment, I want to encourage everyone who can do so to give generously to WBAI and help keep shows like this on the air. You can give by calling 516-620-3602 or going straight to give to the number two, WBAI.org. Again, that's 516-620-3602. You can make a one-time donation or better yet, sign up as a WBAI buddy for $10 per month or more and help keep WBAI and shows like this on the air. I'll share that phone number again at the end of the show. And now we turn to Pauline Pisano, a lead organizer with the New York State Poor People's Campaign to discuss its upcoming winter offensive. I'm sorry, uh, it's winter offensive that is already underway. The Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, is a countrywide coalition of activists that advocates against systemic racism, poverty, ecological destruction, militarism, and religious nationalism. Part of the Poor People's Campaign's network includes homeless unions throughout the country, including groups in Rochester, New York City, and Syracuse in New York. During December and January, the groups are taking part in the National Winter Offensive, an organizing drive that includes a series of information sessions and demonstrations throughout the holiday season to raise awareness for homeless issues. Bazano also recently took part in an anti-eviction protest organized by the Crown Heights Tenants Union. New York just enacted a law that would prevent evictions for most people who are suffering COVID-related financial hardship until May 1st. Thanks for joining us tonight, Pauline. Yes, thank you so much for having me. That was a great introduction. (laughs) I'm glad. So before we jump into the big picture of the winter offensive, what does this eviction moratorium mean for homeless movements in New York? Yes, so I'm glad you brought that up. So yes, so that bill uh, was just passed. And so It gives a 60-day, it's basically, it's kicking the can down the road. Um, So it's, I I don't want to, um, it's amazing what tenants are fighting for. Um, And and it's it's really a movement that made this happen. 
Um, and a lot of organizing went into making this happen. But I, a lot of people also know that this is just a Band-Aid that's going to last for about 60 days. So actually, um, it's a 60-day moratorium on any evictions in New York State. Uh, but you also have to fill out, you can fill out a form that then stays an eviction uh, by May 1st. And so um, everyone's going to be getting a piece of mail that kind of explains this, but you still have to fill out this form. And so there's going to be a lot of organizing, I think, around making sure that people know that they have to fill out this form uh, to, to, to put that into action for May 1st. But also, it's just kicking the can down the road. I mean, this is a national emergency. There's 30 million uh, people that are going to be facing evictions in the year 2021 right now, and that number could increase. And so it's just kind of a little bit of a stay of uh, what's happening in New York State. So it's amazing. It's an amazing win for tenants and for the movement. But um, anyone that's fighting for that will tell you it's not nearly enough and so much needs to be done. And now moving on to the offensive um, specifically, there are a lot of local and national groups at play here. So how are the Poor mm. People's Campaign, the state and citywide homeless unions, and all the other groups working together to carry out the winter offensive? Well, yes, yeah, so what you explained in the beginning was really great, that it's really a coordinated political operation. And so when we think about that, we think about political education um, and uniting the leaders from these different fronts of struggle. I think one shift that we've kind of seen is the need for a fusion politic of organizing. So, um, you know, what we're doing is we're seeing, we're basically bringing new and emerging leaders into this analysis of, um, you know, the need to end systemic racism, poverty, ecological devastation, militarism, and the dis distorted moral narrative of kind of this moment. And so we're kind of really seeing a real uniting of uh, leaders to kind of build this movement, because just like this new eviction moratorium, this, this, it needs to be a movement. We need to have that kind of power to kind of restructure um, everything because the system is not working. What are some examples of events the Poor People's Campaign and other affiliated groups have held as part of the Winter Offensive? Sure. So um, uh, with the Winter Offensive, we've done a lot of virtual events. Um, and so anybody listening right now, you can go to the National Union of the Homeless, NUH, their YouTube channel and see some of these memorials. So on December 21st, we held uh, uh, an, the annual day of memorial of the people that we've lost in the struggle of homelessness um, and uh, that we've lost to this very violent system. You know, this is it's, you know, homeless, not helpless. And so we really want to lift that up. And so um, we've held those events. We're doing a lot of cultural events, and we have another event on January 15th as well uh, to kind of, um, which is uh, the, the birthday of Dr. Reverend King. And so just talking a lot about that moment and those movements. And then the Poor People's Campaign is also, you know, we had um, a caravan drive that we did that demanded for just COVID relief. Um, and we also have, we launched a, a 14 pol a policy priorities. Um, that the new administration can enact within the first 50 to 100 days um, that they need to enact, our demands that they need to enact so they can um, end poverty and, and homelessness. What is so significant about doing the winter offensive during this season, during the holiday season? Mm, that's a really good question. Um, so uh, I am, I just graduated from social work school, so um, <laughs> I'm a really quick uh, recovering social worker in the sense of, you know, <laughs> we're really fighting for solidarity, not charity. So kind of in this nation's narrative in this moment, when we go through the holiday season, we see a lot of uh, religious institutions, a lot of um, other institutions kind of talk about, uh, you know, charity and, and, and lifting people up through those moments. But we need solidarity, not charity. This problem is not going away, um, you know, with, with simple individual acts of kindness. This is, a, this is an environmental and a structural problem. So the significance is kind of breaking this idea of, um, you know, that it's, you know, that homelessness is, is a thing that just kind of happens. Instead, it's about building power. And so when we think about that, we, we think about really lifting up the leadership of those at the front of struggle. So this is something that I think, at least in my life, um, I've kind of seen and I've definitely, um, you know, as I kind of learned a little bit more uh, 
gained some political education, I began to kind of see the systems around me, how this would kind of happen that, you know, you, you know, you would, um, you know, talk about the poor on Sunday and then walk by them on Monday and, and not even think that they're actually your leaders, that when we lift from the bottom, everybody rises. And so um, it's kind of shifting the narrative, I think, in people's heads about what is possible and what needs to be done uh, to change our objective conditions, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And tell me about the recent anti-eviction protest you took part in and others that have been happening. How did the one that you were at unfold and are these part of the winter offensive? Ooh, um, I would. So, yeah, so uh, I was a part of an anti-eviction protest in New York City uh, uh, earlier this month. Um, and it was, you know, we were going to the different law offices uh, that were executing uh, evictions uh, in Crown Heights. So I was at the Crown Heights Tenant Union um, as an advocate with them. And uh, the experience was uh, quite difficult. We did not know um, all we I actually did not know. I've practiced civil disobedience before, but this is the first time that I actually didn't expect to get arrested in the in the way that we were. Um, we were kettled before we left the building. We, we were leaving the building and then we were arrested and we were held for nine hours. And this kind of goes back to the other point that you brought up is that, you know, we were held um, in a pandemic. You know, we had our masks on and everything, but, you know, we're held in the cell in a pandemic for nine hours. There were 11 of us in the, that identified as women that were in the woman's cell. There wasn't enough places for people to sit. And this is all happening when the precinct is having their holiday party. Um, and, uh, it was very difficult. It was very difficult treatment, uh, that, you know, that we were receiving, um, which is not surprising, but it's always surprising. It's one of those things. Um, and so, you know, eventually we were let out, um, and then the spill, and then, you know, the spills won. So I think, I think that this, what happened, uh, in New York state with the spill is it's a, a lot of people doing a lot of work. It's not one person it's not one person running a bill. It's not some silver bullet. It's a lot of people pushing to do this work. And so when I think about if this is a part of the winter offensive, it absolutely is because the strategy of the winter offensive is to unite leaders and I think build strength and power. So because of all of the political education, um, because, you know, the work that I've been doing with the Poor People's Campaign for the last three years, I knew that I had to go to this anti-eviction protest. And you know, and I knew that I needed to connect with the new people that were going to that anti-eviction protest, that somebody who is a little bit more of a seasoned activist like myself, there's things, you know, there, I, I'm there to help people that are getting into activism or, or getting into protests for the very first time, um, you know, to kind of be there. So in that way, I really do see that as a, as a winter offensive, because, again, it's a coordinated political project. Mm -hmm. And what are the ultimate goals or demands? of this year's winter offensive? Oh, yeah, uh, to end homelessness. <laughs> I mean, that's the demand, to reinstate universal right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's the, that's the demand. And that's, that's part of where, you know, some of the, you know, the nonprofit industrial complex, I would like to say, or some of these, some of these other institutions, like the goal is to end homelessness. It doesn't have to be at a time where there is massive abundance of wealth in this country nationwide we are seeing the billionaire class get richer and richer and richer while the poor are getting poorer and poorer and poorer and so the demand is to end homelessness everybody has a right to live everybody has a right to a house and the thing is that we can do it there are so many vacant lots that don't need to be vacant lots and we have to rethink and restructure and reorganize how everything is run and we have got to start listening to the people from the very front lines of struggle. Um, you know, that's a really important thing because we can miss, we can miss a lot of opportunities and miss an analysis if you are not at the front of struggle. And, you know, as someone um, that has gone through, uh, you know, school and social work and things like that, you know, it's really, it's really important that we, understand that the poor are the experts of their own life and that it's not the other way around that um that change has to come from that that's part of our theory of change um that it comes from that leadership mm -hmm. 
And how does this year's winter offensive differ or perhaps be more dire than in years past because of COVID-19? I know you mentioned um, your experience even protesting, you know, the stakes are high with um, the possibility of getting arrested and put in a cell with a lot of people. You know, the stakes are very, the stakes are very high. I was definitely terrified for a little bit when that, when we weren't expecting for that to happen. Um, And so I think two things. So yes, this is a a reinstating of the National Museum of the Homeless from the eighties and nineties. And I think one really big, um, the leaders of that movement are in this, moment with us as well. And so they really talk about the fusion politic. Um, So it's not, you know, they see that it's not to end homelessness. You also have to talk about systemic racism and you have to talk about, you know, environmental destruction that's happening. You have got to talk about militarism. Um, So I think that's one, that's one major piece of it. It's just the thinking about it and how, how it's being organized. That's different. Um, But then in this moment, Again, 30 million people are faced with evictions across this country, and it's it's it, it's a it, it this needs to be absolutely addressed if we are to survive as a nation. Um, you know, Dr. King talks about we could you know perish a spiritual death if uh, if we are not a person-oriented society. You know, and the thing is is that most of the working class are people-oriented societies. We just have to be organized so we can force the powers that be to gain the political will to do what we need them to do when they are desirous to say no. Mm -hmm. And now we're about to run out of time, but um, where can people go if they want to get involved um, with the Winter Offensive, with the Poor People's Campaign, or with their local homeless union? That's my favorite question. so uh, you can go to thepoorpeoplescampaign.org to learn about the Poor People's Campaign. We are in 40-plus states across this nation. We have a list of 14 policy priorities that we are demanding the new administration to immediately enact, um, and we're going to hold them accountable to that. Um, so you can, you can get involved in your local chapter, and I think that that's really important. And then also you can go to the National Union of the Homeless, NUH's uh, YouTube channel, to view some of the past um, events like the memorial that we had on December 21st. And also you can view that live for January 15th. And through that, through those means, you will find your local leaders um, that you can then connect with um, and, and fight for, you know, we're going to fight for the objective conditions that we all need in this moment. Um, Cause that's mm-hmm. extremely, I mean, our lives depend on it. Well, thank you so much for your time today. That just about wraps up this week's edition of the Independent News Hour. I'm Olivia Riggio. We'll be back same time next week with John Tarleton as your host. Thanks for listening. <laughs>